Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. A very pleasant good evening to all of you. It is good to see you here and good to know those that are hearing me that I cannot see. I would like to see all of you. We're studying tonight Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And I have a one PowerPoint, well, I have a one slide PowerPoint tonight, as is our custom. That's a little bigger. I hope you can read it better. But there's our text for tonight. I put those on the board because I call the scripture out and you forget where it is. And not only that, some of those I will not read thoroughly. And you'll be able to uh, copy them down if you want to study them later. Romans is a great book. Love it very much. Love chapter 9. It is a wonderful, wonderful chapter. I want to go back and review a little bit, though, in Romans 7, 5. We talked about this last week and week before last. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Why in the flesh? Because the law appealed to the flesh. When he says while we were in the flesh, well, they were still in the flesh in the sense that We have flesh on our bones, but they were not in the flesh in the same way. They were not under the law. The law was made by God. It was a spiritual law. It was a perfect law for what it was given, but it was made to appeal to the flesh. Notice the temple. Hiram, a pagan, was hired by Solomon to build the temple to oversee it. And he was very good at what he was doing. He employed pagans to help him. Most of the Israelites who worked on the temple were just common laborers. And Pagan and his uh, and uh, and uh, Hiram and all his men were the skilled workers on the temple. Why? Why make such an elaborate building? Because God wanted to appeal to the flesh of the people who worshipped there. The high priest's outfit, he wore every day except the Day of Atonement. Years ago, it was estimated to cost $10,000. Well, the price of gold and all the precious things have gone up. Probably 100000 now would be its value. What, what is God doing? The high priest is the chief official in the spiritual part of the kingdom. And he was dressed elaborately. The music, instrumental music in the temple, in the temple only. Not in the synagogues, not in other kinds of worship, just in the temple. But instrumental music was there. The sacrifices, they were the best. Most beautiful animals. The rituals were regular, twice a day. And then special ones on specific days. The rituals, yearly, monthly, Weekly, daily, 
They went through certain rituals. Everybody knew what they meant. They knew what time a goat was being sacrificed. They knew what time everything was happening, prayer time at the temple and so forth. These were the things the law stood for because it wanted to appeal to the flesh to draw men into it. Now, there is something that I wanted to note in here in Ezra chapter 3. I don't have that on the board, no thing. Zerubbabel's temple, you remember, was inferior to, Solomon, to uh, Solomon's temple. At least that's what the old people thought when they went back and laid the foundation for the temple. You know the story. The young people applauded and shouted, and the old men wept because they said this temple is inferior to Solomon's. But there's something here that's different. In Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, I'm going to read this because it's so very important. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth and sea and dry land. I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory. What temple? Zerubbabel's temple. I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord. The glory of the latter temple shall be greater than the former. The glory of Zerubbabel's temple will be greater than the glory of Solomon's temple. That's what he said. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord. Isn't that amazing? When Ezekiel was in Babylonian captivity, the Lord transported him from the river Kavar to Judah, set him on a high, and this is about 560 B.C., set him on a high mountain north of Jerusalem, presented to him a man whose appearance was like bronze. He had a line of flax, a measuring rod in his hand. He stood in the gateway. God was showing Ezekiel the temple that would be built? No. He was not showing him Zerubbabel's temple that would be built about 50 years later. God begins in Ezekiel chapter 40, and I'm not going into this in any detail. It could take two weeks to do this, but you might want to do it, to describe the magnificent building. It's priesthood, it's worship, it finishes the book. Nine chapters with those details. I want to stop here and really emphasize this. We have Solomon's temple, which is the most magnificent temple that was ever built in Jerusalem. Zerubbabel's temple comes along, an inferior temple, but a superior temple because that became Herod's temple, and the Lord himself walked in that temple. That made it more glorious. But Ezekiel comes along, and he presents a temple that is far beyond any of the two. Ezekiel 40 presents a temple with more gates, bigger gates, bigger streets, bigger everything. Great sacrifices. If you read Ezekiel 40 through 49, you will be amazed. When is that temple going to be built? The fundamentalists today are wanting to build that temple in Jerusalem. They're going to build it where the uh, Muslims have built their uh, their place there. They're not going to do it. But they're making plans. They talk about trying to uh, develop a red calf. 
There are not too many red calves, red cows, but they're doing that. So this temple that Ezekiel describes, more magnificent than anything they've ever had, this temple can be built and they can offer all those sacrifices that God talks about in Ezekiel 40. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that description is not about a physical temple. That description is about the church. It's about the kingdom of God. That's all that it means. And it's presented in such a way so that it looks like a magnificent temple, far greater than Solomon's, because the church is. Luke 17, verse 20, beginning, says something. Jesus, of course, was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. He answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. In other words, you're not going to see this temple. Nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. And that's the temple that's described, as I understand it, over in Ezekiel chapter 40 and on past there. The great temple, the kingdom, we're in it today. I want to ask you something. Look back at Solomon's temple, the beauty of it, and then look at God's temple today. Well, I don't see it. I I can't find God's temple. No, because you are the temple of God. It is within you. What did it take for Solomon to worship? It took a host of priests, animal sacrifices, instruments of music, name it, various rituals, washings, and so forth. What does it take for you to worship in the new temple? It takes your mind focused on God. It takes a piece of unleavened bread, a cup of grape juice, and a hat for collection. That's it. Under a shade tree with a group of people. Oh, but I like this. I like this too. Keeps us dry, keeps us warm, keeps us cool. But this is not necessary. This has nothing to do with worship. This is about comfort. And I'm not opposed to comfort. I like soft pews. But we can sit on the ground. And Brother Glenn Colley can get in this pulpit and never pick up a Bible in the pulpit. And he can preach without a Bible. We have many song leaders here who can lead singing without a hymnal. And we can lead with them. We can sing with them easily. We can worship God with bread, fruit of the vine, and a hat. There's the greatness of the temple we're part of. The greatness of the kingdom we're part of. Romans 1 through 8, we've just studied it, focuses on salvation by grace through faith, not of works. I know that's in another book, but that's what it focuses on, not of works. That's in man should boast. And not a single thing we can do, not a single thing we can do to have access to God unless he hands it to us and says, take it, and tells us how to take it. We cannot earn or merit anything. We can, not nothing. That's the way it is. Chapter 9, beginning, changes the story a little bit. It does not change the fact. I don't mean that, but shifts in subject. 
And it is about something very different. We turn to another subject, God's sovereignty. The sovereign God. And these three chapters are favorites of the Calvinist. Because God arbitrarily selects people to do what he wants them to do. Selects people to go to heaven. Selects people to go to hell. They say, we're going to learn different. Look at Now let's look at our text. Romans 9, 1, 5 through 5. I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. Look what Paul said. He said, I tell the truth. This is me. In Christ. And and in the Holy Spirit. Bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. You think he's making a statement that's important? Absolutely so. That I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, and the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. What a tremendous statement. But he said something James Andrews cannot comprehend. He said, I could almost wish myself accursed. That means cut off from God. Had to do with eternal damnation. If it would save my brothers. I want to tell you something. And you're not going to like me when I say this. But I want to say it anyway. If God were to say to me, and he's not going to. James, it is either you going to heaven by yourself are you going to hell and let everybody else on earth go to heaven? What do you choose? I choose to go to heaven. I choose to go to heaven. What about all the rest of the people? I choose to go to heaven. I can't bear the thought of going to hell. Can you bear the thought of they're going to hell? I don't want them to, but you gave me a choice. Me or all of them, all of them, I say. Send them into eternal damnation. Take me to heaven. I don't know how Paul said what he did. I don't understand it. Paul was in a hurry to get to Rome. He gets to Rome after he writes this letter. And he gets into Rome as a prisoner, of course. He has a guard assigned to him and he has a rented house. So he has some privacy. So he invites some Jewish brethren to come and hear him tell what's happened to him. And they're excited about this. They they want to do that. They want to go and hear him. They said, these things that we hear about this sect, we don't don't understand it. We don't know about it. We, we, We don't understand why you're here. We don't understand who you are. And Paul says this in verse 28, therefore let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. Because see, after Paul explained it, they said, we don't want this. We don't want what you're offering. Paul has been wanting to come to Rome ever since he became converted. And now he comes in his first sermon, his Jewish brother said, no, 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 we don't believe that. And he even quoted Isaiah to them. 
Hearing you shall hear, shall not understand. Seeing you shall see and not perceive. For the heart of this people is grown dull. Their ears are full of hard of hearing. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes. Hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts. And turn, and I should heal them. And he said, that's where you are. The people Paul came to preach and convert, preach to and convert, were in that kind of situation. They'd close their ears, they'd close their eyes. They were not willing to listen to him at all. I want us to notice in uh, chapter 9, verse 5, we were there a minute ago. <clears throat> said, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the sacrifice of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all and eternally blessed. Amen. Christ came from their flesh. Christ came through them. And Paul is reminding them. In Romans 3, 1 and 2, what advantage has the Jew... What is the prophet of circumcision much in every way? Chiefly because to them was committed the oracles of God. Paul said you've got everything. You had the oracles of God. You're not even making good on that. Verse 6. But it is not the word of God. It is not that the word of God has taken no effect. Notice this sentence right here. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. You know what he's saying? Just because you are Israel doesn't mean you're Israel. Just because you are of Abraham, physically, you are not of Israel. It is not that way. Nor are they all the seed, uh, are they all children because they're the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be blessed. In Isaac, all of Isaac's seed be blessed. No, no, no. That's what they thought. They thought because they were Isaac's. They were Abraham and Isaac's. And all of all them would be blessed. He said, no, no. In Isaac, through Christ, all the seed would be blessed. That is, those, those who are of the flesh, those who are keeping the law, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Children of promise, Christians. Not those of the flesh, not those of the law, but those of the promise. I want us to notice the next reading. This is very, very important down in verse 10, but verse 9, for this is a word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the person of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls it is said of her, the older shall serve the younger. There's something hidden in this verse. And I'm going to be very, very plain about it. Because it's not plain in any translation until you get to a Jewish translation. Then it's strange. It's plain. But look at verse 10. 
Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. That's not what it says. That's not what the Hebrew says. Here it is in the complete Jewish Bible. And even more to the point is the case that Rebekah, for both her children were conceived in a single act with Isaac. Similarly mission is in the Bible. And why did he put that there like that? Because he minimized any natural distinction between Jacob and Esau. It's not that their mother and one man were together in bed. It is the fact that in that emission, at that time, there were two men conceived. Just as near to each other as they could be. Just as much like each other as they could be. Unconditional election. He said, the younger shall serve the other. Hold on to your seats. Don't throw anything at me. Unconditional election. Absolutely so. But. Election to what? Well, I think it, Isaac was elected to go to heaven and Esau, Esau was elected to go to hell. You thought wrong. Has nothing to do with salvation. Has nothing to do with salvation and hell. It has something to do with a different kind of election. Jacob was elected for covenant service. Esau was not elected that way. The covenant of Abraham never brought unconditional salvation to any one person. Never did. And that's where we get so messed up in this chapter right here. We believe that a certain part of, of certain people in this, in this uh, uh, community were elected for salvation and certain people were condemned to hell forever. I know that I've told you about a man who's been preaching for longer than I have. Back in 1963, when I started preaching, I had to drive 45 miles to worship. That's the closest congregation that had anything to do with me. And I would listen to him on the radio at that time. That was a long time ago. I remember him well. Remember his voice. Remember his sermons. He's still preaching the same sermon. He's a Calvinist. And he's told he is closer to Calvinism than Calvin was. I've never in my life heard anybody like him. He has everybody, every individual. He has James Andrews saved or lost. And James Andrews can't do anything about it. James Andrews might be the best guy in the world, but if he's going to hell, he's going to hell. He might be the worst guy in the world, but if he's going to heaven, he's going to heaven. Because of God's election, God has elected me from before I was born to go to heaven or hell, and I can't stop it. I can't change it. The Bible doesn't even hint at that. The Bible doesn't deal with that kind of election. Well, he elected Isaac for a specific person, purpose. And he did not elect Esau. I want to ask you a question. Promised Abraham, in thee shall all nations be blessed. That in thy seed, and that seed incidentally is singular, that seed is going to come through Mary in the New Testament. 
So Abraham's people are going to take that seed to Mary. Did Isaac have it? Yes. Well, now he has twins. He has twins that were conceived the same night with the same act. Which one of those sons are going to take that seed? Both of them? No, it can't be. God elected Jacob to be that seed carrier. He did not elect Esau. He had to make a decision. If you as a father or grandfather have one thing you can do for your grandchildren, just one thing, and you have two grandchildren, you've got to do it to one or the other. You can't do it to both of them. If it's a physical thing you give to them, cannot do it. Granddad, I want that clock when you die. Well, I hope you don't get it soon. Little girl comes along, Granddad, I want that clock when you die. You're not going to leave it to both of them. You can't. So here was God. Uh, what had, what had, uh, what had, uh, had Jacob and Esau done? Nothing. They were still in their mother's womb. They might have been a one-celled human being when they said that. When he said that, I don't know how old they were. They had done nothing. But God made a decision, and that's unconditional. He didn't ask anybody about it. He didn't say, I wonder what James Andrews in 2023 is going to think about this. He didn't care. He made the decision. Now look at verse 13. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. I was preaching in Georgia recently and uh, ran across this. And one of the men came to me. He said, I never knew that was in the Bible. That's kind of scary, isn't it? Well, it depends on how you look at it. I was preaching. I was on a tour in Ukraine years ago, and I was speaking. I spoke at three different places that day. And I had a certain element of people following me around. And there was a woman that followed me around. I was not speaking on this, but she said, her question was, am I supposed to, uh, to hate my mother and father? brothers, sisters, husbands, so forth. Because Jesus said, if anybody comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, sister, brothers, yea, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And I explained it to her. That the word hate there does not mean to hate in the sense that we think of it. It means to love that person less than you love God. Stopped at the next place. She asked the same question. Third place, she asked the same question. And another person came to me after it was over and said, Brother Andrews, we, uh, we can read too. We heard what it said. You have to hate your father, mother, brother, sister, and so forth. I said, man, get me back to the United States where people understand this. <laughs> they didn't understand it. They couldn't understand it. But here is uh, Matthew five forty four. Jesus said, but I say unto you, love your enemies. You're supposed to love your enemies, but you can't love your husband. You have to hate your husband, have to hate your wife, have to hate your brothers and sisters, your mother and father. So inconsistent. So inconsistent. 
And uh, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Jacob have I selected, Esau have I not selected. Jacob have I brought up to a higher plane. Esau did I not bring up, he's just an ordinary guy. That's what I've done. Romans 9, verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Let it not be hatched. Make an oito. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. It's not what you do. God makes the decision about that. Very simple. Do I question God? No, I cannot question God. I know what his promises are. I know what decisions he's made. He made a decision to let Peter teach on Pentecost. He who believes or repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. He made a decision to do that. That's where he stands. I don't see that that's important. Well, do you see that God's important? It doesn't make sense. Does it have to make sense to you? God is arbitrary. He's sovereign. He can put it out there if he wants to, and he put it out there. And he elected people who had done that to be saved. Verse 17, the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised him up, that I may show power in you, that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Sounds tough, doesn't it? I want to uh, look at some things after Pharaoh. I want to come back to Pharaoh, but I want to look at some things first. I want to go to Jericho. I want to go to the, with the two spies to see Rahab. And Rahab is explaining to them, look, well, please save my family. Save my family when you take this city. I know you're going to do it. And that should not be, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I'm going to do it anyway. Joshua 2.10. Rahab says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sahan and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. She said many other things, but the word had gotten to Jericho, this little town of Jericho learned about drying up the sea, learned what God had done to Pharaoh, learned what he had done to kings through this nation that's about to attack them. So let's go back to Pharaoh just a minute. Exodus seven thirteen, Pharaoh's heart grew hard, it says. Uh, God sent the blood, he sent the frogs, and Pharaoh said, take these frogs away, and then Pharaoh hardened his heart. The flies came, take these flies away, and then Pharaoh hardened his heart. Exodus nine twelve, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Ever seen that? Several times, the Lord hardened his heart. 
Why? God is using Pharaoh. God is using Pharaoh to teach a lesson. I want to ask you something. If Pharaoh had said to the Israelites, you may go, and he had let them go, where would they have landed? In Canaan? But Pharaoh said, you can't go. Where did they land? In Canaan? Their destination was the same. But God took the strongest man in that country, or in that area, maybe the strongest man on earth, and he said, I want to show this man who I am and who is greater than he is. I'm going to show him and demonstrate to the whole world. Then God made Pharaoh do something stupid. I don't think he did. The idea of hardening his heart is not always as we think of it. Part of that scripture there, part of the scriptures where he said he's hardened his heart, he made his heart heavy. God made his heart heavy. And that idea is that we talk about a man with a heavy hand. What does that mean? It means he does what he wants to. If you get in my way, I'll knock you out of my way. God gave Pharaoh the courage to do what he wanted to do. When Pharaoh was about to give up, God gave him courage to keep on. And keep on. In order to teach his people and the people of the world a lesson. And it worked. You will say to me then, in verse 19, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Why question God? Will a thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel to honor and another to dishonor. I always wondered why God didn't make me a millionaire. He's never told me. I know some millionaires. He made them millionaires. Why didn't he make me a millionaire? I don't know. Why didn't God make all the people of Israel <clears throat> men of war like he made Joshua? Joshua was a mighty general. Or why did he make them great leaders like he made David? God had a right within that nation to make people like he wanted them to be. He had the power over them. The potter has power over the clay. And he could make them like he wanted to. (laughs) If not, why not? And some of them became vessels of dishonor and some of honor. He didn't make them in a position so they could not. But he's given us all, he's given us strengths and weaknesses. And my strengths and weaknesses are not the same as yours. I'm a different person. (laughs) But that's the way God made us. If you want to get real technical about it, I'll give you two new words. One is salvific, the other is utilitarian. 
salvific and utilitarian. Some of God's people became salvific, dealing with salvation. And some became utilitarian, getting the job done, whatever they were assigned to do. And that did not mean that they could not do different, but it it means that was their bent. What if God, in verse 22, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessel of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Oh, that makes me sick in my stomach, the Jews were saying. You're going to get around, Paul, to saying that I think the Gentiles are as good as we are. Everybody knows, every Jew knows that's not the truth. Don't say that. Well, God said, uh, Paul said God made it that way. Why do you question that? As he also says in Hosea, I will call them my people. You remember Hosea was sent out to marry a prostitute. Gomer was her name. She did a very good job. He called her out of prostitution. She went back into prostitution and probably had a son named Loami. I'm not sure that was Hosea's child. I will call them my people who are not my people. And her beloved, who was not my beloved, it shall come to pass where it is said to them, you're not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. Back over in Hosea 1, Gomer gave birth to a guy named Jezreel, then gave birth to a daughter named Loruhama, and then a son named Loami. The Greek word, the Hebrew word is very easy to understand here. Ruhema means mercy. Lo, Ruhema means no mercy. Lo in Hebrew is like M in the English language, possible and impossible. Or like un, laced and unlaced. So Ruhema, Ruhema and lo Ruhema, opposite meanings, mercy and no mercy. And then the, the son named Loami. Amy means people. Lo, not my people. And Hosea 2.23 says, Then I will sow her for myself in the earth. I will have mercy on her who has not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, You are my people. And they shall say, You are my God. He is looking forward to the time when Christ would come and make that a fact. That's what he's talking about here. And I love the book of Hosea for showing us that great message. It's what he was talking about in Romans chapter 9, verses 25 through 26. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. Salvation, not for all the Israelites. They're not going to accept it. 
salvation through Christ and for people who accept it. Most of the Israelites did not and do not accept him. There's no salvation outside of Christ. The remnant will be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it in short in righteousness. Cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. Moved from the earth. Destroyed. Existing no more. But God left us a seed. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness. Even the righteousness of faith. The Gentiles got it through faith. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness, the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. They they pursued salvation through law. They pursued salvation through through the flesh. The Gentiles didn't have that law. They were not welcome into that law, even though there were some proselytes. They were still not welcome. They were thought to be inferior. So they perceived it as something not for them and pursued the law pursued the law of faith the law of righteousness uh, the law of faith and then the Israel kept on pursuing the law of righteousness being right with the law it didn't work why? because they did not seek it by faith the Jews did not seek it by faith but as it were by the works of the law For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. They stumbled over Christ. Christ, as the stone was put there for their comfort and for their protection. But they rejected it and, wow, it didn't work. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion. That's the place where the Jews believed was the great place, city of David. A stumbling stone, I put that in Zion. A rock of offense that whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Those poor Jews that Paul preached to when he entered Rome didn't understand that. One more verse. Isaiah 8 says about the same thing. It's a it's a prophecy. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. It's very strange. Let him be your reverence, your awesomeness. And let him be your shuddering kind of fear. He will be as a sanctuary. But the stone of stumbling, a rock of offense to both houses of Israel, as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Jesus Christ, put there for their salvation, became what we up in Tennessee would call a deadfall. The old people used to make deadfalls. They'd lift a heavy rock up, put a stick on it in such a way that an animal 
trying to get the bait there, would go and knock the stick out and it'd fall on him. My dad told me about that. They got a lot of food that way. All kind of animals. That's the picture right here. Jesus became a deadfall instead of a refuge for the people. Well, I hope that wasn't too hard. At least you listened well. Thank you so much. I appreciate your attention. Next week, I will not be here, but Tom Collier will. Tom, I told on you, you got to do it. Hang in, chapter 10. Thank you. God bless. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for hearing us. Thank you for giving us these messages from the Bible. We may understand that you're an awesome God. You're a sovereign God. We have no right to question your activities, no matter how they might seem to us. We accept you by faith. Thank you for hearing us and blessing us. We pray through Christ. Amen. Don't run in the hall. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.